Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's August 31st, 2021. And I don't think there's much doubt. I think everyone would agree, whatever their politics, their nationality, their religion, their political ideology, uh, that we live in an age of upheaval. For some, that's a good thing. For others, it's bad. But there's no doubt about the upheaval. You just have to look at the newspaper headlines. Um, America now is changing its identity in the world. Today's marked by uh, the American uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan and perhaps a profound change in America's relationship with the rest of the world. Uh, the COVID epidemic continues to rage. The numbers are up again in the United States. Sometimes they're down, but they're mostly up, particularly associated with people who, for one reason or other, won't be um, vaccinated. Um, our age of upheaval is equally profound and troubling in the area of the environment where I am in Northern California. Uh, wildfires are enveloping the country. The smoke in the Bay Area is increasingly bad. Meanwhile, in the South, where my guest is actually uh, today, uh, the hurricane season has arrived and it's a particularly troubling one. Um, our age of upheaval is not just about the environment or COVID. It's also about politics and culture. We live in the age, of course, of Black Lives Matter and a profound change in how we in America think about race, racial identity, and prejudice. And in spite of all this, though, in our age of upheaval, the business world seems to be doing reasonably well. Uh, U.S. house prices rose at a a record rate in June, according to the Financial Times, uh, in spite of COVID. And as I speak, uh, Wall Street is inching to record highs after uh, the general feeling of optimism about the future of our economy. So the, the question becomes, in our age of upheaval, how should leaders behave, particularly corporate leaders? My guest today on the show is a very familiar figure in corporate America and is an authority on giving advice to leaders. His new book is called Reset, A Leader's Guide to Work in an Age of Upheaval. So he's into uh, the phraseology age of upheaval too. Um, his name is Johnny C. Taylor Jr. And he's talking to us from uh, Louisville, uh, Kentucky. I, I always like pronouncing that word. Louisville. Johnny. <laughs> so good to be here. <laughs> uh, and apologies, Johnny, to your father in particular. Uh, my assistant left off the junior from the lower third. You are Johnny C. Taylor Jr., although you don't look very junior to me. You look very much of an adult, and you are an adult. You're one of the leading figures in the uh, American business world. Uh, you are uh, what president and chief executive of the Society for Human Resource Management. So, Johnny, to kick us off, tell us how you make sense and identify our age of upheaval. I threw up some headlines to to kick us off, but I'm sure you want to describe the the age our age of upheaval in a, in a in a more considered way. 
Well, no, I, I actually think you you nailed it, and and not just because I'm an I'm on your show today, but because I think you've covered it all. I mean, you think about it. Everywhere we turn, uh, we are in a real moment of upheaval. Interestingly, it's not just a moment. I mean, if you think, you know, 15, 16 months ago, we all thought back in March of 2020 that we'd shut the country down for 21 days. I remember the number, then some said 30. And then at the 90th day, and then the sixth month, and in one year mark, here we are, year and a half later, still talking about COVID and now Delta and Lambda. And but what we haven't fully appreciated is that this moment is bigger than a pause. See, that's what we all thought it was going to be, a pause in March of 2020. And what we experienced was a, a total upheaval in the way we live as human beings, not just in the United States, but globally. And what is even more profound from my perspective and from the business person's perspective is how that has impacted people at work. You see, unless you are you know, a trust fund baby or you just independently or you don't care about money, most of us have to work for a living. And therefore, all of those stressors that you've described, the economy, the environment, our healthcare, education, for those who are trying to educate their children now remotely, um, all of that. Comes yeah, I left out education, actually. Most, most kids have been marooned at home, hating having to deal with their parents on a daily basis. Uh, I've got college-age kids who, I think, from their point of view, are happily out of the house. But it's been a very difficult time for kids. Yeah, everyone. And so it is upheaval. Rarely do you have universal upheaval. And to that point, sometimes something's not going well in the United States, but in Europe, things are better. We have globally dealt with all of this now for 15 or 17 months. So it is it's truly not, um, there's no other word to describe it other than a true upheaval. So we live in upheaval, Johnny, uh, as you say in your book, uh, Reset, the, the subtitle is A Leader's Guide to Work. You're an authority on work. Your day job is focusing on, um, on, 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 on improving the quality and the experience of work. Um, and there's a lot of controversy about work. Uh, we've heard endlessly every day there's a new story about when and where big companies are going to go back to work. But the, um, the headlines are that uh, now they're pushing their return back. Amazon, one of America's leading employ employers, I think they're actually now America's largest uh, employer, employing more people than anyone else, have pushed their return back to January. Uh, and what's interesting, and I'm curious on your take of this, particularly in this part of the world in Northern California, here's a headline from one of the tech uh, online papers uh, big tech companies are at war with employee employees over remote work. Uh, people don't want to go back to the office. They're fearful of it. They're happy at home. And yet the big tech companies in particular, who probably are a bellwether for the rest of the economy, want them to go back. How do you make sense of this, Johnny? And what's your advice in Reset about whether or not we should and need to go back to the office? So two issues. One, you know, we talk about Amazon and, and we talk about uh, Walmart and you know, large employers in this country uh, pushing people back to work. Well, the reality is, and we don't cover enough of this in the media, most of Amazon's employees are not working in offices anyway. Most of them did not have the luxury of working remotely. I mean, we're sitting at home during the break and someone drops a package off at your door, a human being in a distribution center somewhere put it on a truck, a driver 
there were a few autonomous driving trucks around, but mostly someone drove an Amazon or a Walmart employee drove the stuff to your area. It was delivered at your door. A lot of people, most of the workforce did not have the luxury of working remotely. So these headlines, frankly, are a little misleading uh, when they suggest that people, you know, everyone's working remotely. Well, that's not true. We know that more than half of the U.S. workforce Oh, worker population. Is there the, I, I take that point, Johnny, but is there a generational divide here? My sense is uh, that uh, older people still think that the office works, whereas younger people are much more comfortable working home, working from home. Having said that, my son, who just graduated from university, uh, his first job um, is virtual because his office isn't open, but he really misses having an office. So is there a generational element to the future of work in the office? So you've asked two questions. First of all, your son is actually more the norm. Younger workers actually want to get back to work. By the way, that's where they meet friends. That's where they meet spouses. That's where they meet, that's where they develop their relationships. That's where they get visibility to senior management. So this notion that older workers want to stay at home and younger workers want to, I mean, want to stay uh, at, at, at uh, younger workers want to stay at home and older workers want to come into the office, it's, it's oversimplifying a very complex issue. What we know is that some employees want to work remotely and others don't. And what so the new reality for employers and leaders in this upheaval moment and reset moment is to embrace flexibility. That's the word. This notion that some people want to work at work, you know, it's ridiculous. We're overly simplifying this issue. What we as leaders have to do now, and I'm preaching to every CEO I spend time with, every CHRO, is we've got to be more flexible. So it could be that your son in the workplace wants to work physically in a building. The person sitting next to him would prefer re work remotely. Others will say, I want three days in the office, two days at home. It's about flexibility, not remote work. Flexibility, Johnny. Uh, in a sense, when I read your book, I think of you as a um, a, a, a mental physiologist. You 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 want us to change dramatically. Your book is is littered with uh, support for change. You quote the great Robert F. Kennedy: "Progress is a nice word, but change is its motivator, and change has its enemies." I assume you don't like the enemies of change. Uh, you quote Charles Kettering. If you've always done it that way, it's probably wrong. Are you an ideologist, um, Johnny, of change? And is the book suggesting that we all have to change? Yeah, by definition, um, we all have to change. Uh, standing still is falling behind in an environment, in a world that embraces innovation and demands innovation, right? So yes, I'm absolutely an ideologist when it comes to change. I joked with someone the other day and said, literally, I periodically will change the way I drive to work so that I take a different pathway because we have to exercise that change muscle because or it atrophies, right? But you like tradition, Johnny. I left out the junior from your title, and I think you would rather have it in there. So you still have an affinity, a loyalty, a, um, a, a fondness for the past. All human beings do, right? We, that's why we study history. That's why we talk about our ancestors. Uh, you can be both. It's not mutually exclusive. One can embrace change and also appreciate nostalgia and our history. And that's what that's where the flexibility comes in. So it's not either or, it's but and. Uh, you mentioned Amazon. You have a lovely uh, 
anecdote about Amazon. Um, I'm going to quote it from the book. You talk about your, how old was your daughter? How old is your daughter, Johnny? She's 11. 11 okay, so 11 year old, charming age. Um, you, I'm quoting, I'm thinking of my daughter's last birthday. People ship birthday gifts to her for weeks leading up to the big day. And I would say that out of 15 boxes, 13 of them had that Amazon smile on them. It was one of those moments that you realize just how amazing it is for one company to have taken over everything you get in your home, an innovation of distribution. Uh, a couple of months ago, we had Brad Stone, the great chronicler of Amazon on the, on the show, his new book, Amazon Unbound, is pretty critical of Bezos and the socio-cultural and economic impact of all this um, innovation. Where do you stand on the limits of innovation? It's all very well supporting change. But should we always embrace innovators? The, the downside of Amazon, the minimum wages, the experience of working in their warehouses, the profound inequality of the fact that Bezos, I think, is the richest man in the world worth several hundred billion dollars, about the same as, as, as 100 or 150 million Americans. Where do you stand on controlling innovation in terms of giving advice to leaders? Well, so, yeah, anything taken to the extreme. Anything unchecked can be a problem. I am not so convinced that net-net uh, Amazon's um, ubiquity and um, omnipresence is a bad thing. At the end of the day, I think about the fact that my child's grandmother in Florida can think of something she wants my daughter to have, a fancy new face mask, because her school is now requiring uh, face mask as a result of the vaccine. And in a day, no more than two days, it is sitting in her bedroom from her grandmother. Now, I grew up in a world where that might take two weeks, right? So, and, and I also think about, surely there are employees working in many of the Amazon facilities, but many of those people were on the sidelines. We have an incredibly high, as a country, labor low labor partition, participation rate, relatively speaking. So they created jobs for people so that everyone could enjoy that dignity of work. Do you want to, is, are any of us paid what we're worth? No, but the idea that this innovation of Jeff Bezos is bad, net net bad is something I can't embrace. I don't think that's accurate. Uh, Johnny, you are your, your day job, as I said, is president and chief executive officer of the, of the CHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management. Um, we've had a, 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 and I didn't see a lot of, um, I didn't see much reference in your book, and I'm going to come to diversity. There's a lot of stuff on diversity, but I didn't see much reference in your book when it comes to union organization. There was a headline a couple of days ago about Starbucks not allowing their workers to organize in a union sense. We've had a number of shows about the importance of unions. Uh, the labor organizer, Sarah Jaffe, Work Won't Love You Back, in particular, Sarah Horowitz, a book on mutualism. Where do you stand in terms of uh, in the introduction or perhaps the reintroduction of, 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 of unions and labor organizers into the workplace? So obviously the law allows for it, but net, I will tell you, I do not believe 
that we should have, I don't dream of a world where employers need to have a third party, a mediator between them and their employees. I think really smart leaders, particularly in this age of upheaval, can hear directly from their employees and respond to those employees within the context of not violating any uh, National Labor Relations Act, uh, you know. But at the end of the day, I do not believe that well-run companies need someone in between them and their employees to make sure that their employees are treated right. And so that means we have an obligation as employers and leaders to get in front of this, not to be anti-union, but to have to desire a one-on-one -on -one relationship with your employees. But can't you have both when you give advice to leaders? Um, surely a, a leader would be comfortable also working with organizations representing labor. After all, you, in a sense, represent an organization representing capital. Yes. Yes, there's no question that, well, and we do it all the time. I mean, I've worked in, in, organ in organizations where you, are, you have both an organized workforce and a non-organized workforce, and you absolutely can have peace. The question is, must you have it? To have to have equitable treatment of your employees, and I would submit to you not, Johnny. Um, you write a lot about diversity, and uh, I, I want to get to that. But you have um, you have an interesting reference to what you call the hypocrisy of the council culture trigger. Where do you stand, and where does your organization stand on the way in which "quote unquote" cancel culture or woke culture has again? And I'm, I'm careful with my words. "Quote right. unquote." infiltrated the workplace. Do you think it has a role, a place? There's a role in ensuring that there are some guardrails, some some spaces where the, the behavior is uncivil or totally is without decency. What has happened, in my opinion, and we've seen it in the workplace, is now if I don't agree with you, it is therefore okay for me to cancel you. That's not acceptable. Frankly, we are all big, you know, supporters of diversity. By definition, diversity means diverse perspectives. And so the idea that there's only one right and that the people who don't align with it are wrong is it's the opposite of embracing diversity. So this cancel culture thing where you are right and anyone who doesn't agree with you is wrong and therefore should be pushed out of the workplace is bad. Having said that, you are um, you are very much a supporter of diversity in the workplace. I'm quoting you here. Uh, you're pretty radical. You say all uh, all all of the civil rights laws, legislation, and amendments since 1906 and since the 1960s, all of the well-meaning think tanks, expensive training courses, and Supreme Court decisions in the early 2000s. And where are we on inclusion? You ask. And here's how you you respond, pretty unambiguously. Our diversity efforts have failed, period. We should own that. Have we yeah. failed completely? Do we get an F on that, Johnny? If you want to give it a D minus, that's fine, because I guess, <laughs> but you don't have to look very far. I mean, look at the number of CEOs who are African-American, the number of African-American CEOs in the Fortune 500. 20 years later, there are fewer, not more, notwithstanding all that we've done to pour into, in particular, the issue of race in, in corporate America, and we've not we've not made a lot of progress. The population has grown 
writ large, the broader population of Black people in this country, but we have fewer people in these leadership roles. I mean, it, it, one has to, the data is there. Now, have we made some progress? Yes. But I want to make one really important point, Andrew, and that is that you can have diversity, but not have inclusion. So even when we measure diversity from a uh, from the diversity metric, are you more diverse? Well, yeah. I mean, listen, America's public school systems are majority minority. So we're going to have diversity. That's coming. The question is, will those diverse populations feel like they are included? Will they belong? Will they be treated equitably? And I would submit to you two, three decades into this grand experiment, no. You're not the first or the last person um, to quote James Baldwin, although I wouldn't have expected a Baldwin quote uh, from this kind of book. You do quote him. In order to have a conversation with someone, you must reveal yourself. Baldwin, of course, is perhaps America's preeminent writer, philosopher of race and racism in the 20th century. Is the problem still in corporate America that white Americans, particularly white male Americans, are racist? So big one. I, I'm not prepared to say a large group of people. I mean, think about it, stereotyping. Well, That's like saying black people are something or women are something. I mean, you can't do that. I think well, but, but you you made a pretty you made a pretty radical statement about diversity failing. Absolutely, there has to be reasons for that. Well, yeah. I mean, for example, all of us have unconscious biases. Uh, there are people who are themselves members of minority or underrepresented groups who hold biases against other groups. For example, members of the LGBT community get a lot of resistance from African-Americans, for example. I mean, the idea that one, a whole group of people can be generally held accountable for all that is wrong with America's diversity failings is, is unfair. And I don't think it's accurate. There are a lot of really good people, white people, black people, Latino people, brown people who are committed to Diversity. Examples, Johnny. You, you, you say, uh, I, I was particularly intrigued with this, you say the CEO is the chief diversity officer. What you're really saying is the CEO should be the chief diversity officer. Pretty Give me nice. some examples of CEOs you really admire who have been or who are chief diversity officers of their companies. Well, one of the people, and he's now deceased, and I'll get to you a real-life current example, but I talk about it in the book, David Stern, the you know former commissioner or CEO right. he, yeah, yeah. He told me pointedly, I am the chief diversity officer. If I, from the top, don't say this is a cultural value that we will live, not just talk about, but we will live, we'll not just write checks and go to dinners and all of that, but we're going to live it. You're going to be able to look around the MBA and say, guess what? We live diversity as part of who we are. Then I have failed. And I think increasingly you're seeing CEOs do this. I'm going to give you an example of one who, who I actually hold up in pretty high regard, Jenny Rometty. Now, to be fair, she's just recently retired, but at IBM, she was absolutely committed to diversity and not just race, not just gender, but we have age uh, uh, people. She employed those who are differently abled, for example. So a broad commitment to diversity is we're seeing CEOs do it. And, yeah, and you have quite a lot of uh, references to G, to Romanetti in the book, so it's it's Tim Cook. I'll give yeah. it to you. you Tim Cook is another one, of course, That's and uh, it's interesting that you, you you're pretty admiring of, of Apple in the book. Although since the book's come out, Apple has made a couple of seemingly major marketing or PR mistakes in terms of surveillance. 
Where are you, uh, Johnny, on Silicon Valley generally in terms of what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism? Do all tech companies need to respect our privacy and uh, both uh, as consumers and also in the workplace? Yes. And I'm, I'm actually very concerned about that. Two things can be true. I think Apple can be committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and also sometimes cross that line when it comes to privacy. Fundamentally, I am concerned at what I'm feeling as Big Brother. You know, we talked back in the day, 1984, remember the book, the Orwellian concept. It, it is a little scary now that big tech has literally can follow and track everything about you. And even though they have the technical disclaimers, only a person who's trained in the law would, would know how to read many of those disclaimers and opt out of these things where they are being surveilled. That concerns me at, at, at a very fundamental level. Sorry, Johnny, there's a big debate on our show. It's an endless debate about the, the moral significance and value and purpose of corporations. You clearly believe that corporations can be good. Uh, I'm quoting you. You say, I like to say, do good and do good, meaning that corporations can be good. But at what point do we uh, need to be careful and perhaps even critical of corporations. Um, you have a, a piece about uh, Tyson Foods, about how they've been quite innovative. But earlier today, I did an interview with I.L. Press, a very good American journalist on dirty work, and he's very critical of much of the labor experience at companies like Tyson Foods. Where do you draw the line? in terms of dirty work and the morality of companies. We've sort of touched on this with Amazon, but I'm curious in a broader sense for you. So no uh, employment experience should be dirty. I mean, put aside the fact that if you're cleaning chickens and carcasses and beefs, <laughs> I mean, it's going to be what it's going to be. But, but I will say from the perspective of the dignity of work, it is incredibly important you do not have to trade off treating individuals with dignity, paying them equitably uh, and, and treating them respectfully and with civility in the workplace. I think you must be able to do both. Interesting that you point out, but uh, you know, it, no one trusts Congress, no one trusts the White House, no one trusts the leaders that you typically think of. All of the Gallup research and all of the, Gal all of the research that we're seeing from everyone says corporate America, business leaders are the most trusted uh, group in, in, in our country right now. People look to their companies to be provide a little bit of direction around their moral compass and to treat people right and to do good and do good. And that's why I think your book's very important. Um, a Leader's Guide to Work in an Age of Upheaval Reset. Um, one of the things that particularly intrigued me with is, is leaders thinking differently about um, about non-leaders, you have a, a chapter entitled The Power of the People You Overlook. And this really resonated. Uh, yesterday, I had the Harvard University Business School professor, uh, Julie uh, Batilana, on the show. I think you'd be very interested. I don't know if you know this book, Power <laughs> for All, which argues that everyone in an organization does, in fact, have power. We tend to think about power into hierarchical terms. Um, so, what should and how can uh, the people we traditionally overlook in corporate America, how can they shape the world and what can leaders do to empower them? 
Well, so we, you know, I talk a lot in the book about empathy from a leadership perspective. And she does as well. The E word, empathy, it comes up all the time, Johnny. Right. And, and not to be confused with sympathy, although that plays a role as well. But we as leaders have to, I, I often say with my team, I think about my 25-year-old self. When I'm making decisions. I thought you were only 25 now. <laughs> 27, my friend, 27. But no, seriously. And so when I'm making decisions, I think about when I was a busboy at a restaurant at 17 in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. What were the things that impacted me? What do I wish the leaders, if it was my frontline manager or supervisor, or if it was the president of the company, how would I want to be heard? How would I want my issues to be resolved? And that's why this empathy issue is so important. You don't overlook people if you are really embracing your empathy because you ask yourself, not so much how do I experience the life as a well-paid CEO, but how do the employees over whom I have responsibility, how do they experience work? And in doing so, I think I'm a better leader. In fact, I know I'm a better leader because by definition, you can't lead if people aren't following you. Johnny, you mentioned Gina Romanetti, of course, one of America's leading female corporate leaders. Uh, uh, You brought up the issue of empathy. We've talked, as I said, a lot about empathy recently on the show. We had, for example, Sherry Turkle, Yes. Uh, very distinguished tech writer and thinker, philosopher, who has a new book out, The Empathy Diaries. When it comes to empathy, can male leaders in particular learn from women? And uh, do we need more female? You, you talk a lot about diversity and, uh, and the black-white divide. What about women and female leaders? Well, we- As, particularly in terms of, 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 of developing empathy in leadership. Well, so this notion that I'm going to challenge something, the notion that men can't be empathetic, I struggle with that because I'm a man and I believe I'm a fairly evolved male leader with an 11-year-old daughter. I'm actually a single dad. Um, Empathy is not something that women have more than men. I, I absolutely just reject that notion. I do think, that being said, that women coming into the workplace... Um, and taking over leadership roles can be huge for us because it's just a different perspective. I, as a man, can't walk in the shoes of a woman. I can be, I can try to be more empathetic toward it, but a woman knows a woman's experience. Not like good that. for your feet, Johnny, work, work, walking in the shoes of a woman. That's right. <laughs> so, but, but that's the notion. So I do think that the beauty of diversity is that you bring people from all walks of life. When you talk about the chapter where I talked about the uh, often overlooked, we want people who are formerly incarcerated. No, I never aspired to be able to totally relate to someone who's been incarcerated. That's not my goal in life. But I should understand that 700,000 people in America per year are coming out of prisons and need to get a job. So I need to understand what their experiences are. And we need to do it. We have 10.1 million open jobs in America right now. We don't have the luxury of not really having diversity and trying to empathize with people even when we don't have the exact shared experience. You quote uh, Alan Kay, uh, the... Again, another great Silicon Valley thinker, scientist. The best way to predict the future is to create it. I think, Johnny, what you've done with Reset is write the future. Uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting, a relevant book, particularly, I think, for corporate leaders, but for anyone who's interested in the reinvention of work in the early 21st century. It's, it's a great book, Reset, A Leader's Guide to Work in an Age of Upheaval. 
Congratulations on the book. I know you are uh, in, as I said, I love pronouncing this word, Louisville, Kentucky. Louisville. Um, that's my best American accent, which isn't very good, I'm afraid. Um, in addition to Reset, Johnny, what else should be people be reading in our age of upheaval? How can they learn to cope and prosper and be happy in these strange times? So I just finished reading a book called The Devil in the White City, Eric Larson. Phenomenal. Mm. Right, it's about it's, London, right? It's a no. It's about Chicago, um, oh, and it's what's... a story about the World's Fair, the exposition that came to the U.S. and and it was fabulous because and why it was so interesting is I was as reading it, thinking about we're in the middle of you know our almost post-pandemic world, but what we've been through the last 15 months. And then when you think about what those people experienced then and all that they did to ultimately pull off the World's Fair in Chicago. It's an amazing story. And that's what I read for fun because I'm always having to read the journal or the Times or this or that and business books. But that would be a great read to anyone who's listening. Yeah. And, uh, and I apologize for the mistake. I think he, he just brought out a book about London during yeah. the war. So this was one of his better known books. Johnny C. Taylor, junior, left out the junior in your lower third, but you are a junior and you're an inspiration. New book, Reset. Congratulations. Keep well, Johnny. Thank you. Be well. Thinking, keep challenging, keep inventing the future, and we'll talk again in the not-too-distant future. Thank you so much. Be well, my friend.